just before we start the show, I want to take an opportunity to invite you to join me for the Podfluence Weekly Newsletter, which is available both on LinkedIn and through the official newsletter channel. Now, if you are on LinkedIn and it's easier for you to follow there, then please just click on the link in the show notes, which will take you straight to Podfluence on LinkedIn, where you can subscribe for free and get weekly updates on Podfluence articles as well as episodes. If you would like to subscribe to the full newsletter where you'll get additional materials and, as my little incentive to you, my pre-podcast guest checklist for you to use when you're appearing on podcast shows so that you can be fully prepared every single time, then please click the link to the official newsletter in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to Speaking of Influence with John Ball from presentinfluence.com. Each week, we talk about presentation skills and public speaking and the tools of influence and persuasion with experts and incredible guests. Stay tuned and enjoy the show. Speaking of Influence is uploaded and distributed to all major podcast networks through Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout is the simplest way to get your podcast started with tons of great resources for new podcasters. You could start your podcast today. Follow the link in the show notes. Um, I'm really happy to welcome back to the show super badass business performance consultant Dana Farron. Dana, welcome back. Oh, thanks, John. It's a pleasure to get to spend some more time with you. Our last recording has been one of the most popular episodes so far of the Loki podcast, so I'm really grateful for that. This is going to be a bit of a detour from what we talked about last time, but we did advise people that this is the topic we were going to come back for, right? Yes. And so this time we're going to be discussing cults, really, and uh, the dark side of influence and persuasion and really the mind control kind of side of things as well. It's a very interesting area. And just just before we get into your experience, because you actually have experience of having been a part of a cult, which I haven't. I've had I have religious experiences, but I've certainly never been in a cult, so to speak. But uh, I got interested in this from just doing a, a public speaking project in my Toastmasters, which is how this podcast started in the first place. And it's one where you're supposed to research an area that you don't know much about. I'd seen a few YouTube videos from sort of um, skeptical YouTubers, I guess, that was about that was about cults. So one of them was talking particularly about Steve Hassan, who has the Freedom of Mind website. And so I started looking into that and decided it was as good a subject as any to do a talk about. And then found out there was really all this stuff in there about the dark side of influence and persuasion that was so relevant to a lot of what I do and that I'm interested in. And I've been keen ever since then to speak to someone who actually has real life experience with that. And when you offered to have that discussion with me, I knew you'd be the perfect person to have that chat. So let's get into it a bit and and tell us your experience of having been a part of a cult. Yeah. Okay. So I grew up a Jehovah Witness, which is listed as what they call a mild cult. So, you know, they don't have extremisms in that it's not a commune that you're living in, but it still fits all the classic 
qualifications of a cult in that they segregate, you've got your own special language, you have, you know, some sort of doomsday prophecy. And, um, and there's something there to keep you kind of locked in. And of course, if you leave, then you're not allowed to connect with the members who are there. So they do a lot to kind of control things. It's just not taken to, and to some of the extremes that are say like the, um, like I said, the, you know, the Columbines, you know, the places where it's like, it's complete lockdown, but yeah, it's quite fascinating. Um, you don't realize when you're in it, how controlling it is, but then when you leave and you really start to, you know, take a step back and it's, it's taken me a good 20 years to really untangle the pieces, maybe even a little bit more. Cause I've really been touching on some pieces recently. Um, again, another layer but the programming happens on a, on a daily basis. So when I was growing up, we went to church three times a week. We had door knocking once a week, and then we were required to do Bible study on our own once a week. So that's five days a week that you're being inundated with these thoughts, beliefs, information. Right. And then it's persuasive in that you're only associated with other people who are also in the same tribe and the same, you know, they call it a religion, but it's really a cult. And so everybody that you talk to is also inundated with these ideas. And so you're not getting any information from the outside, which leads that deeper programming of, yes, this is, this is the way to think. This is what I should be doing. And you end up, you know, kind of following along as like those sheep just kind of getting, you know, herded into the pen. Um, So it's fascinating. It's a bit like uh, a bit like the Dunning Kruger effect to some degree. Like you don't know what you don't know, and when everyone's kind of saying the same thing, if you know what everyone else is talking about really well, and you know all the ins and outs of that, you're going to seem like a super smart person who's got it all together. But outside of that community, it could be a very different picture, and people might think that you're very limited in, in what you actually know and what your experience is. Now, I didn't, didn't have that level of limitation in my thinking, but I can certainly relate to the idea of being part of a community where the same, same story is essentially shared all around and that, how much that reinforces the beliefs that are being spread. But at uh, well, what point did you start to realize that that wasn't really uh, maybe how everyone else was living their lives and that you were <laughs> in, a, in a, something that you might not even have recognized as being a cult, but as being different to normal? Yeah. And, uh, you know, that really starts when you hit school um, because you're you're segregated. So when I grew up um, at that time, they played the Lord's anthem, Lord's Prayer and the National Anthem. Um, and so we were required by by our cult to stand in the hall. So as as a you know, right as a six year old, I'm, I'm standing in the hall during the Lord's Prayer and the National Anthem. Again, you know, symbolizing that I am not part of this group. So I'm really segregated from it. But it's very, it's also, it also does a a jarring piece for for the individual of like, I'm so different. Why are they doing all of this and I'm not? And, you know, every time we have art class, you know, people are drawing Santa faces and I can't. I have to do something different. Always leaving it so that I am different. I'm being picked on. You know, the kids are bullying me. You know, all those typical things. Anytime you're different, you're going to get picked on. Um, That started it. But, you know, in the early ages, 
you don't really, it's like, well, this is, this is all I have. I, I need to be doing, I need to be conforming. And you're told from the beginning, you're told all the way along that they have it wrong. And this is the whole us versus them kind of scenario that always gets set, sets up in a cult. They have it wrong. And so you, you feel like you are the chosen special people that somehow you have it right and they have it wrong. But I think for me, by the time I reached my teens, that was where I was like, you know, my, my brain was starting to, you know, really get into gear and I'm really questioning things because things don't line up. Some yeah. of the things that I question, they don't have really great explanations, not for my liking. And that starts me kind of, you know, looking around um, yeah. at that point and checking out what else is going on. Were there ever any times before that where you were maybe questioning in a more general way, maybe not having any suspicions, but just asking questions that were not being appreciated and were like, no, you stop asking those questions. This is a problem. I think the earliest I can remember doing that, like really pushing back. I mean, I remember having questions, but just like, oh, well, it's just, you know, we just go to church a lot. Like I just brush it off. and then. I would say probably about 14 was when I really started to ask more questions. And, and at this point, you know, I'm really getting the picture of what's expected of me is that I get married and have kids. This is the expectation and that I'm not to go to college. You know, I'm, I'm talking about, you know, careers with the career counselor at school and, and people at church are like, why you're just going to get married. Like you don't need to go to college. And it's, and that probably was the biggest jarring piece for me because I do have ambition. I do have drive and I could see myself, you know, going and doing something at that time. I thought I was going to climb the corporate ladder. Uh, (laughs) That's a whole other story, but you know, that piece where, where they were pushing back on my desire to, to be ambitious, that created a questioning in my mind. Right. And, and I can I can well understand that as well. But at, at what points did you maybe, as you know, a better question perhaps to ask is what, what were sort of some of the things that you started to notice other than things like not being able to draw Santa or uh, I don't think you said Jehovah's Witnesses celebrate birthdays as well. Is that right? So yeah. So what were some of the other restrictions that you had? And when did you start to become aware of maybe the not so obvious restrictions? Uh, so obvious restrictions are all of the holidays. So Christmas, Easter, all, all the, you know, quote unquote religious holidays and, uh, and then birthdays somehow get lumped in there. I don't, you know, but worshiping yourself or something. I don't know. They have some reason there, whatever. Uh, so basically there's really not much in the way of celebrations. Yeah. And you know, that's very different from everyone else. The, the not so obvious ones, like I said, is, is a subtle undertone of women being second class citizens. So things like um, within the church, women were not allowed to lead any kind of meeting. Um, and then there were, there were always like these mini services before we went door knocking. So you have these mini services. Mm-hmm. So through the week, there weren't always men available to lead. So they had this rule that if a woman was to lead one of these services, she had to put a hat on. To lead, it was like, what does that do? And that was my question. It was like, what does that do? Like, oh, I got a hat on. Like, somehow that makes me a good substitute. And so those those funny little quirks really did, you know, cause a questioning in my mind. 
Sure. A lot of religions have those those kinds of things, those silly little laws or that maybe sure they don't seem silly when you're in the religion, but to people outside they might and probably do. For yeah. <laughs> for, for, for you though, I guess one of the things people associate the most with the Jehovah's Witness is the door knocking. Yes. Did, so you did some of that. You would go with your family or did you go um, on yes. your own? <laughs> uh, yeah, so it was mostly... Uh, mostly with my family growing up. So I was required to start taking, like taking the lead, talking at doors. I remember this at eight and the very first door that I knocked at, I, you know, I'm up there, my knees are shaking and I'm like, Oh, really nervous. And I knock on the door, the woman opens it, realizes who we are and slams the door in my face. And that, that was really like, it was also another eye opening moment where you start to question like, what is it? But at that time, it's just, you know, this piece that that they justify by saying God's chosen people will be persecuted. And it's like, look, see, it's evidence that we are God's chosen people because we're being persecuted. Yeah. It, not having the, the fortitude. I mean, now I look out and I'm like, well, of course you're persecuted. Call on people at nine o'clock on a Saturday after they're hungover from a Friday night of drinking. Of course they're going to be mad, yeah. right? You bug people enough, they're going to get mad at you. But you don't see that when you're in it. Yeah. Interestingly, here in Spain, the door knocking is prohibited. People are not allowed to do it. So here, the Jehovah's Witnesses will stand on the street with a stall, with a little stand with all their Watchtower magazines or whatever. All that now here. And uh, in Spanish here, of course. And they'll be in groups of at least two or three and you'll see them all over the city, really. Interesting, because they're not allowed to go door knocking anymore. I think it was maybe um, regarded as too intrusive and that it was a, a nuisance to people rather than any kind of benefit. So they've been stopped from doing it, which is quite a big restriction. And I, I'm sure it must have had quite a significant impact on them because, as you mentioned, they're also not allowed to approach people in the street. It's like it's okay if people go and speak to them and ask them, but uh, but they can't actually go up to people and and yeah. witness or whatever they want, whatever they call it. And I don't think that's the same in the UK, and I'm sure it's not the same in, in the US as well. But it would certainly be interesting if those kinds of uh, laws were brought in in other places too. But this is one of the, the things about it. I don't, I don't personally understand what attracts people to, to those kinds of organizations. And if they're not already searching for something like that in the first place or feeling that their life is empty and lacking in meaning. But yeah. you grew up with that. What do you think it was that kept you there? Uh, well, just being, you know, it's a roof over my head. It's, with my dad, he was very strict. And so it was my way or the highway. Like, as long as you're under my roof, you'll have to, you have to keep going. Mm. Um, to come back to the piece, he said, why do people, why do people go? Um, why do people to, you know, join? So, of course, you know, I got to see over the years a, a number of people who ended up coming into the religion and uh, consistently, and this is what they talk about consistently, they are looking for the lost sheep. And, and this is true of all cults. They look and prey on people who are in a weak spot or who are vulnerable, who are down. Um, I remember this one couple that um, that my parents brought into the, the religion and they were new immigrants. 
So didn't have a lot of friends, didn't have community. We're really missing that sense of, you know, connection and friendship. And they struggled with the English language and, you know, they came in. And of course, when you are brought in, you are welcomed. It's, it is a very family connection community. It's very tight. You know, if there's anything that goes wrong, they're there. They're there to help. You can pick up the phone and they'll bring meals. They'll come and help you. They'll give you money, you know, to help you pay your rent if you're, if you're down. Not continual support, but they really do support one another. So for people who are feeling, you know, lost and alone, these kinds of organizations and, and cults become very appealing because it feels that fills that need. And of course, sense of community and belonging is one of our core needs as humans. But that's yeah. really what we prey on. That that makes it makes a lot of sense. And I think that is the case with probably most if not all religions and even further than religions any kind of groupings where people choose to identify themselves and have that them and us kind of mentality we see that in politics we see that even in uh, business to some degree there are even business cults so i've been made aware of it was a bit of a surprise for me but uh, the, it's very much that case of uh, wanting to be cohesive that the power of the community is really strong. Everyone feels like they want to belong somewhere. And if you want to belong in that kind of group, you have to go by the rules and and at least look like you're playing a good game, even if you don't wholly believe in it, right? But for you, as soon as as soon as you were able to get out from home, was that it? That was like you started moving away from that. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I knew I knew at 16. So at 16 <clears throat> I tried going all in. I, I got baptized. So in that religion, you choose if you're going to get baptized and you have to be um, at least, I think 14 is the minimum age. But anyway, um, so I, I got baptized and I'm like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend that summer. And I went, you know, did the full out door knocking, I don't know, something like four or five times a week kind of thing. Yeah. And I thought, I'm just going to dive right in, going to get all in. I'm going to hang out with the, you know, the, the kids that are really into it. And uh, by the end of the summer, that had kind of locked in that it was like, no, I really don't like this. So at that point, I started planning in looking at, okay, how do I get out? Um, I needed to finish high school and, you know, plan plan my escape, so to speak. Now, I did have my, my mother to move into her place, which was another interesting extreme of what I grew up in. But having that that plan in place of, of saying, okay, I'm, I'm moving out. It wasn't a matter of, you know, being torn at all. Um, I knew I needed to go. I just, I couldn't stay. I, I was probably going to kill myself if I stayed. So, Sure. It's yeah. a pretty repressive kind of environment. And yeah. you know, I, I see parallels with, with my story. Certainly around the age of 14 to 16, I was like yourself trying to get very deeply into the religion that I was a part of. And a lot of that was the, the cognitive dissonance that was going on in my head, trying to hold that idea and sort of being told by lots of people, well, questioning it is backsliding, that's doubting, that's a lack of faith and all these things that really were making me think that I wasn't being a very good Christian <laughs> and had to work harder at it. And then around the age of 16, I actually got asked to leave the, the church that I was in, certainly the membership of the church I was in. Because in a Bible study group, I had dared to question the uh, the biblical truth of Adam and Eve as literal people. 
and that it might have actually been biblical myth and metaphor, that was enough to for one of the elders of the church to get completely angry about that and insist to the rest of the leadership that I be removed from the membership. Wow. Yeah, so it seems like a crazy thing, but that was a lot, well, at the time I still believed in it, but um, not the way that they wanted me to believe in it and asking questions that were causing some problems. So I was uh, given a nudge on my way. And I know it upset my parents and a few other people in that community, but for me, it was the push I needed to say, well, maybe this isn't really where I belong. And I explored other religions thinking that religion still had answers for me and eventually found my way to something that didn't revolve any religion or even particularly spirituality but it took a long time I know from my experience not having been part of a sect that it messed me up quite a lot psychologically there was a lot to deal with a lot to overcome especially having been a young gay boy having to deal with all that inside the church I can only imagine it must have been probably 10 times worse for you in a, in a religious cult. Yeah, the it's one of those things that you know when you're when you're moving forward you don't realize how how much it what it takes. You don't realize how hard it is because it's it's normal. Yeah. You know, leaving that was normal. Yes, I I understood that it was hard, but I I don't I didn't grasp it at that time when I look back now I'm like, "Oh my goodness." Like that took a lot to just leave. Cause I, I left my family. I left all my extended family, which was the entire congregation. And, and I had lifetime friends in there. I had to just walk away from everybody in order to choose what was good for me. And that's the thing is, is, you know, to look at that now and think, wow, that's, that's some real good gumption on my part at that age to just walk away from everything. Um, and I think the process of, rewiring my brain over the years, deprogramming myself has been, um, has been rocky because I think at that time, like we're going back, uh, 30 years, more than 30 years. Oh dear. <laughs> more than 30 years. I think about it too much. So, you know, there were, there were not the, the support groups. You couldn't go on the internet and just like Google, you know, ex Jehovah witness groups and, right. and get the support. And people didn't understand a lot about the programming. I don't even think they had identified Jehovah witness as a cult at that point. Yeah. So there was a lot that I had to kind of figure out on my own and um, bumble along. And so it's really, I would say it's really only been the last 10 years that I've been able to dig in and say, okay, these, these are the, the rules that I grew up with. This is the crazy programming. Now, how do we change it and get into the, the actual, you know, computer system and change the coding? Yeah. I, I don't know about you, but I, I even now find the stuff that crops up that comes from all, all of that. And I think anything yeah. that you've been to a degree programmed with as a child is probably going to stay with you forever, really. Uh, To some degree. I mean, there's, there's definitely things that you can do to manage it. And actually you say about it cropping back up again, of course, this pandemic has uh, triggered for me flashbacks of the whole, you know, this constant fear of Armageddon, the fear of the, you know, the end of the day. Uh, And, and so, yeah, it was reading Steve Hassan's blogs that, that brought that. I'm like, Oh my goodness, no wonder. So, you know, moving through that has been 
uh, another layer, another, you know, different aspect of it. Right. I mean, Steve Hassan is interesting because he really does work. His mission is helping people to deprogram themselves. He was deprogrammed mm. from the sense that people might have an understanding of what deprogramming was in some of the movies from around the 80s and 90s where you know, kidnapping people out of the cult and, and kind of forcing them to face up to reality and stuff. And he is very clear that he doesn't think that that was actually a good way. I mean, it did work for him, but he didn't think it was a psychologically good way to rip people out of that, that he Mm. works more in the education and empowering people to understand what they're a part of and step out of that. But what makes it particularly interesting, because I think you're right, a lot of people don't even know what a cult really is or what makes something a cult. Like, what's the difference between a religion and a cult? I didn't know that for the longest time. I thought, well, really, no, uh, the the religion's been around longer and it has more people. I thought that was the bigger difference. But there's so many more things. And uh, I know Steve Hassan isn't the only person who has that kind of insight and information but what he lays out in the bite model which is like the behavior control the information control the thought control and the emotional control all of that stuff you can see it and and he says you know the more of those things that from that model that you see then the more the more of a cult it is so you can say well you you know said it was the a softer cult than some of the others his cult was the Mooney cult which people probably think that have more of that association with what cults are, are actually like. Mm-hmm. And you see more of those elements of the bite model within there. What were perhaps some of the most obvious ones for you now, now that you've come across his work and the, the bite model, what were some of the big elements for you of the kind of control methods that you saw? Uh, segregation is a really big one. So keeping it very insular, you're only allowed to associate with people within the organization, uh, that creates a very, you know, that insular community, your only, your, and the, and the uh, language. Language is a really big one. So having your inside verbiage, slang, you know, and everybody's got the lingo that they talk. And so that's a way of actually segregating, even within a lot of self-help programs. Sure. There's very much, you know, cult-like stuff going on within those. That's a whole nother rant. Um, yeah. Got sucked into one of those too. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, those pieces having their own, they have their own version of the Bible and it's, you know, it's, it's twisted to fit what they want. They, you know, you're, you're discouraged from reading material outside of what they provide. It's all about that control of where are you finding your information? The control in how many times a week you are supposed to be associating with each other and, and you know, where you move, how you move. The other thing that drives me crazy is the money aspect of it. Like this constant and religion in general is really bad for imprinting people with this idea that, you know, don't have too much. Okay. Could you put a dollar amount on that? Could it, you know, is it 30? Is it 50? Is it 100? How much is too much? At least exactly how much is too much. <laughs> right? So there's always this vague sense of I'm doing it wrong. Yeah. Um, coming in there. And so when you're, and, and really it's, a, it's just that piece of brainwashing where you're told something over and over and over and over again, the, the brain takes that in as being true. Yeah. I, I can understand how, 
and um, the Joel Osteens and Joyce Myers of this world are so appealing to people and say, oh, you can have it all. You can have all this money and you can have, uh, you know, we, you can be as rich as you want. And that's very attractive to, to a lot of Christians who are thinking, or people who want to at least think that Christians saying, okay, well, the church has always said, you're not supposed to have money. You're not supposed to be rich. And he's saying, no, God wants you to be rich. God wants you to have all this. Uh, and is a, cult in a different kind of way maybe not so strong as uh, a lot of other things but it is certainly a, a another variation on on the theme and has that extra appeal i think for a lot of people and crosses into a lot of personal development stuff as well i find which uh, which kind of disturbs me a little bit sometimes however that's not not so much what, what we're here for today but i I am interested. I, I read, uh, I was recommended a book not too long ago, and you may have come across it. It's Tara Westover's book, Educated. Have you seen that? Come across no, it? not yet. It's, uh, it's on the bestsellers list, I think still at the moment. And uh, she grew up in a Mormon, strict Mormon cult, and yeah. had to essentially educate herself and uh, and some of her family as well and this is really about some of the problems that she had an experience growing growing up in that that they lived in the sticks you know they weren't in a place where realized that anything was particularly abnormal until things got a bit older and mm -hmm. she was able eventually to educate herself but she talks about the whole journey of having to come out of that and how all the resistance that she encountered herself I know with Jehovah's Witnesses from limited experience and contact that I've had with that particular organization, that the shunning part of it, the pushing people out of the community is, is a big part. I mean, that's the part of the control thing. You know, exile was in ancient times the ultimate punishment, right? And uh, so what happened for you when you started to come out of it? Was that your experience as well? Oh, absolutely. Um, it, it was, yeah, everybody has varying degrees. Uh, they've eased up on the amount of that uh, kind of exile, you know, torture, so to speak. So my, when my mom left, they, they, they chased her down, like physically chased her, cornered her. Like it was just, it was, it was really bad. For me, I moved out. And I just made myself unavailable. So they, they tried calling me, but I just, I wouldn't take the calls. I took one call and they, they said some things. They're like, well, we'd like to sit down and have a meeting with you, you know, come to the, I'm like, really, I'm going to come back there. I know what happens. You know, you're, oh, great. So here I am an 18 year old girl. I'm going to sit down in a room full of eight to 10 old white men. And you're going to ask me about my sex life. No, I don't think so that's not okay. Like, it's just, it's harassment. Like at the beginning, they harass you to try to get you to come back. And then they shun you and get everybody to not talk to you as a pressure to get you to come back. Um, and for, for some people, it, that works, that, that sense of like, oh my God, I, like, I've just lost everything. I need to get back to these people. And, and so they'll come back and they'll do their penance and they'll, you know, they just like, you know, almost like kiss everybody's ass to try to get back. And it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy making, like, they really do a lot to make you feel like you are insane and that you need them. And, and that's where, that's where it really kind of goes oh, really wonky. Right. It gets a bit more than that though, doesn't it? I mean, 
I dated a guy who were uh, his family Jehovah's Witnesses, and he'd grown up with that as well. And he had no experience in the dating world. I mean, he was a, a virgin and everything when when we first met. And I remember how challenging that was for him because he was going through the process of coming out to his family. And this was also around the time that his older brother were and his wife had just had their first child, and they cut him off. Yeah. They just pushed him out completely. And it was the thing of even uh, his mother was contacting him secretly. His father was contacting him secretly because they didn't want each other to know that they were yeah. trying to contact them because if it got back to the church, <laughs> if the, one of the other reported yeah. them, that yeah. they too would be kicked out. They would be shunned as well. You weren't allowed to have any kind of contact with someone who's been shunned from from the yeah. church. He he never got to see um, his uh, his nieces or nephews. I don't even remember what they were. And we, we didn't date for all that long, but we eventually lost touch. And this is kind of interesting because it's only just recently that uh, I was on social media and I saw a... Uh, a picture of a guy who like, connected to him through someone else. So it was really very random. And it was a, a wedding photo of him and his late husband, the guy who had turned out killed himself. And I thought, oh, that looks just like my ex. And I thought, actually, it looks a lot like him. And then I did a bit of digging and found out that two years before, he had actually ended his life. Wow. And ended up contacting his husband, his widow, and finding out as sort of delicately as I could what had happened and saying, hey, no, I used to date this guy and, uh, you know, we'd lost touch and I was really sad to see this. And he said essentially it was that he'd never really gotten over all the stuff that had gone on with his family, that that was what had led him to that stage of ending his life, which to me is horrific. And I know it's tough, but I also know he was a sensitive guy, a very caring, sensitive guy, and that just how deeply that that has hurt him, as much as he tried to normalise his life and deal with it and move on from it, that that was still there, shattering over everything. So we can't really underestimate just how damaging and harmful these kind of societies can be. But that, yeah. that for me, was... Uh, a horrible realization you know I knew he'd been messed up with that and I was angry enough about that but then to find out that it actually over time led him to to take his own life that was absolutely heartbreaking yeah but, it, but not but not unique unfortunately it's not it's really not and and I know you know from watching people over the years people that I know that leave you know they often end up um in really bad situations, alcoholism, drug addiction, you know, in and out of bad marriages. I've seen some that are in and out of prison. That kind of thing runs quite rampant because they don't have the skills and they don't necessarily reach out for help because they've just come out of a cult. And so reaching out to something else for help seems a little scary and dangerous as well. So it's really, it is really sad, but you know, hopefully these days the people coming out realize that there's way more resources available. Right. There's more support structures now, as, as yeah. you said, and I, I've seen, I've seen some of them. What, 
what were the things that helped you most of all in dealing with this and um, recovering your your life, if, as it were? Uh, you know, I was in therapy right from from the get go. Um, so I started out because I I also had um, sexual abuse that had happened. So I started going down that path to get healing for for that, and that took me into various forms of counseling and therapy. And I, and I, I kept looking, I'm like, there's gotta be something else. There's gotta be something else. You know, I, I see people out there who are happy. I would like to have that. How do I get that? So I tried, um, you know, group therapy, traditional counseling, psychotherapy. I went for ACA. I, I even tried AA for a while. I thought maybe I'm an alcoholic cause I was drinking quite a bit and, uh, and, and, you know, went through all of those different things and then kept, you know, just kept trying to find, I, I started looking at self-help, um, you know, came across things like the EFT, the emotional freedom t- tapping, you know, that um, Tony Robbins stuff, you know, I dug into everything. I was just constantly like, there's got to be something. I had this strange, just draw that it was like, there's got to be something. There's got to be something more than this. And so I just kept looking. And for me, the the kink world was was really the big turning point. And I know we talked about this in the last episode. That was really the big t- turning point that unlocked some of those pieces from my body. And then then from there, I was able to get traction with the other tools. And it's just been snowballing. And, and the, the tools that I have now are you know a hundred times more effective than than what we started with. So it's it's that intrinsic motivation to want to find something else and to be constantly looking and asking questions. Yeah, that's that's fascinating, and 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 it's got me thinking along the lines of again paralleling my own experience of that. That the hardest part for me, not in really in just overcoming that, but in growing up and finding myself was dealing with the shame aspect of things that I, I felt ashamed of who I was. I felt ashamed mm-hmm. particularly of my my sexuality, my my thoughts about other guys and thinking that that wasn't been told for so many years. It's not normal. It's not natural. God doesn't like it, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. You go to hell for that. And that was a really, really hard thing to, to deal with. And even not, not just within religion. I mean, for, for me at that age, um, in the media, uh, gay people were very vilified, particularly in the UK. I, I don't really know what the uh, US or Canadian press were like at that time, but I don't think it was particularly positive either. <laughs> but, uh, the, but the UK tabloids especially were hateful, absolutely hateful about gay people. And so there's a re- there was a real fear that you knew that if people realised who you were and what you are about, that... Um, you wouldn't just be shunned. You, no one would come near you. It's like you you were an absolute pariah in society. To, um, you may as well have been a leper, you know, walking through the streets. No one would come near you. At least that's what it felt like. Uh, and that the communities that did exist were made to look so, I don't know what the right word is, they were made to look so depraved and so... Um, below where everyone else was that you wouldn't want to be a part of that how could you want to associate with that and this concept of that you could never be happy if that was the life that you chose for yourself and I can't choose that for myself I can't never be happy and and I think the shame thing isn't exclusive to anyone who has issues with their sexuality but I can well imagine how getting into something like the kink community 
could have helped to transform your own feelings and experience around sexuality and even um, even just about yourself in general. Yeah, it, you know, it's a, it's a really great space um, to spend a bit of time in and then leave, to my opinion, because, you know, that first bit where you go in and you see people exploring really, you know, all kinds of different things. You know, you've got, you've got somebody who, you know, wears kitty cat ears and a tail all the time, like all 24 seven. And then, you know, there are other people who are, you know, the corsets are their thing. And so they just, you know, they're, but you see people that are just expressing themselves, expressing what they love to do, being able to get information from them of why do you like that? Why is this, you know, and the, for the most part, there is a fairly safe space for, you know, your kink is your kink and whatever you're into is your kink. You know, it doesn't, doesn't have to, I don't have to, um, as my friend calls it, ick your wow, <laughs> you know, if that's your thing. Um, so it's, there's a real freedom in that, that you don't necessarily get in other places. That's and I think community good, thing, right? again, mm-hmm. it's kind of community again, right? I mean, it is a community. You're accepted definitely. there. You're not being judged negatively as well. Well, I, I, hopefully you're not being judged negatively. You know, that wasn't always true, but uh, yeah. Um, but there's, there is a general consensus, especially when I got into it. There was, you know, there was kind of a community. There were, there were people that had been in for a long time, and so they kind of mentored others to, you know, make some space and, and, and create an opening that is like, oh, well, rather than being shunning other people like ask them find out like what is that what why do you like it what what works for you so so that's very fascinating what's interested me particularly about cults is that very often people think that they would never fall for it they would never be brought into it that i would never believe that and I, I wouldn't become wouldn't ever become a harry krishna or a jehovah's witness or whatever and they don't realize how these organizations go about recruiting people, that it is so clever. It's more than just knocking on the doors, which, you know, most people probably do slam the door. Although I can remember as a young Christian lad who was convicted of my beliefs, trying to convert the Jehovah's Witness while they're trying to convert me when the doors don't kind of thing, which was all very civilized and everything. But now as I look back, Okay, that was a bit weird, really. But uh, I, I do think that people do, um, one of the things that makes people susceptible is thinking that they are immune to it and that they would never fall for something like that or pulled into it. What do you know about uh, some of the techniques that people use to, to bring people in? Um, well, with the Jehovah Witness in particular, I know that they're, they're really looking for the people who are easy to convert. They're looking for those that are, already feeling lost, already feeling, uh, yeah. uh, you know, you know they've, they've had a death, they've, they've had, you know, so there's something um, leaving them susceptible. They, they're not going to go after the person who's really, like, they would never go after somebody like me at this point, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm good, or, or the person, you even, you know, trying to convince them of your religion, they're, that's not who they're going to be continually knocking on the door. Um, but basically, the technique is really in one of um, wearing the person down. Um, so if you continually knock on somebody's door and you continually talk to them a little bit, and, and so to, 
go back to this example, I can think of that couple that, um, you know, they were new immigrants. And, you know, so first contact, there's, you know, there's a little bit of communication, you know, hey, there's somebody knocking at the door. They, of course, live out in the country in this old schoolhouse. It was a great schoolhouse. And um, so they're a little bit isolated. So now, oh, look, there's somebody to talk to. And so the conversation starts. And then you start visiting them once a week which is starts that sense of community. And, and then you start having Bible studies with them. So before they're even invited to the church, you're indoctrinating them before you bring them into the fold. And in that process, you know, what's happening behind the scenes is of course that you're, you're checking out if they're going to be a good fit. And, you know, if they're, you know, if they're receptive to the ideas and receptive to the ideas. And I think the, the Bible study part of it goes on for, at least three months, maybe six months. It's quite a long process. Then they're invited into the church. Now at this point, they feel special because they've passed the test. Okay. And here's the thing with the dark psychology. Once you've had somebody go over some hoops to get into something, if it's been a bit difficult, they're more reluctant to get out. So even if once you're in, you kind of go, hmm, I don't know. Then you start assessing like, well, maybe it's not so bad. And that cognitive dissonance kicks in where it's like, well, you know, it's not that bad. Or you, you reason it. It's like, there's, there's more good than bad. And, you know, nothing is perfect. And you, you reason with yourself to stay. And that's really the big thing is they have that long process to get them into the, into the actual church. Then they get to meet everybody else. And now they are welcomed in as one of the fold suddenly you feel special. And, and we saw that, I don't know if you saw the, um, uh, the Waco movie or the Netflix special. I on, think said, but I mean, I remember the Waco. Thing. Remember the Waco event. The, the Netflix special is actually pretty good in, in that, especially when you watch that piece, because there's one person that gets taken in and it's that same kind of thing, making him feel special, having him feel part of the community. And then he gets to a certain point where it's like, okay, you can't just visit. This is what says to him. You can't just visit. You have to be all in or all out. Mm. And it's at that moment when they've had a taste of that community in those early days before they really start questioning things, then you get that commitment. You're all in or you're all out. And I think that's very similar for, for most of the cults. There's some variation of that. Yeah. And again, I, I thought come to Steve Hassan, who talks about that, um, the cult that he joined, I think they used attractive young girls to help pull, pull in young, impressionable lads like himself, which he was yeah. very young and a student at the time. But also particularly he did talk in his book about how they will sometimes target quite intelligent people, even people you think, well, wouldn't go after someone who's kind of intelligent. Well, some of them will because it's a real big win for them uh, in the cult mm -hmm. to, to bring someone in who's regarded as well-known or intelligent. I mean, look at Scientology, for example. Oh, Scientology is big for that. Yeah, a very, a very strong example of that. And, and yeah. also one of those uh, organizations that, because it has such a foothold in the entertainment industry, you know, I've known people who've been trying to make it in that industry who've ended up on the fringes or getting into Scientology because of the opportunities that that organization can, can end up leading them into. But in the meantime, you still have to, even if you tell yourself you're just going through the motions, you're still being indoctrinated. You're still doing it. You're still complying with, with that kind of behavior. And that can't, no matter how strong you are, it's going to have an effect. It's going to seep in in some ways. Yeah. 
and you say you maybe start rationalizing it and thinking actually it's not so bad and I can deal with it and hey look these can do a lot for me we we have a, a good work for me Let, let's go a bit deeper with this those are all all these sort of inroads that are possible for you to get especially if you're surrounded by a ton of other people who believe in the same things or at least appear to believe in the same things because no yeah. one's gonna no one's gonna express any dissent in public in the group because it doesn't well that's it right if if everybody is saying the same thing you're like well i can't i can't question this i don't want to be the only one i mean there's been lots of scientific studies to show that nobody wants to be the only one to stand out against you know whatever it is even if it's blatantly wrong nobody wants to be that only one but as soon as there's one other person then people can can rally behind and start to speak out so you're, you're asking about the you know the people that are intelligent I was going to say that we all have moments where we are emotionally more <clears throat> um, sensitive, you know, down and vulnerable. And no matter how intelligent or wealthy or successful any of those things, we can we can all have times in our lives where we feel like we need community, where we feel like we need support. And if we don't have that, that's what also makes us vulnerable. I, I think. One one thing that could be interesting is that people may be listening to this who have some relatives or maybe even have some associations with these kinds of organizations themselves and don't feel don't see anything too bad about it. And you know, I in those circumstances I would encourage people to check out Steve Hassan or really just to go back and listen to to what you've been saying about your experience. What are, what are the things people should maybe watch out for most or question most, do you think, at least for themselves, to start getting maybe just, at least just a bigger picture of where they are? Um, I think if you're involved with any kind of uh, religion, organization, business, you know, association, all those kinds of things, start to look at... Um, how much are they willing to embrace others? How much are they willing to say, okay, this is what we like and you know, they're okay if they like something else. It doesn't make them wrong. The moment that any you know, system, organization, business makes everything else wrong and them right, that's a big red flag for me. And I see this in personal development worlds um, I see this in businesses and, and businesses love to create a cult environment, a culture. You know, you look at uh, ClickFunnels. ClickFunnels is a culture. Like it's a cult. I mean, he even says it. It's a, he creates a culture. It, it is a cult following. Like there is that aspect because they get in there and then it's like, this is the only thing that's right and, and everything else is wrong. And just, you have to just be doing, you're just, you know, one funnel away from two commas. Like it, there's, all this kind of mind control stuff. So I would say, are they inclusive? Do they say, okay, this, this is, I love this, but if you're doing something different, you know, fill your boots. If not, start to have some questioning thoughts about it. Yeah. What sort of resources are you aware of now that you think might be helpful for anyone who's had similar experiences to yourself? Um, you know, there are a lot of support groups now. There's, there, uh, there are free groups, just like we've got Al-Anon and ACA. There are support groups for people leaving, and it can be um, cult-specific. So I know that there are Jehovah Witness support groups that are available. Some of them are online, some of them are in person. Um, 
go for a little time period just to know that you're not alone. You weren't crazy and then get out because those become an insular <laughs> kind of substitute of the cult as well. But, you know, that's a good place to start and then seek out a good therapist or coach that works with people who, you know, understand programming and how cults work and how they operate and how to deprogram in a way that is um, sane and effective because just going in and ripping things out is not necessarily uh, either sane or effective. It's not kind. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a really important point you know, for whether it's a, a cult or any, any kind of community led organization where you've been a, an integral part of that without much on the outside. If you just rip that all away and you don't have any kind of support structure uh, besides that, you're going to feel very lost and, and we need some kind of anchor but also you're right not to replace one cult with another to <laughs> to go for something a, a bit more balanced and I just yeah. recently put out an article about what I see as the cult of positivity in the personal development world. I just read that before we get on here <laughs> cool. yeah. yeah and I think it's it, I think it's very significant that you know there is levels of thought control and that's really what we're talking about people who are trying to tell you what to think and I'm very big on critical thinking actually helping people to to think for themselves to have their, their own thoughts I, I don't think anybody has all the answers I think we should take things and question them and test them out and see what really is true at least for us and um, and investigate things a bit more deeply and not just take other people's words for it and I do think there's a lot of great resources around critical thinking and cognitive bias that that people would do well to know and I would love to see taught in schools as well because I think we're far too open to these things not just in terms of religion but in the world of politics media and, and everywhere really we're very yeah, marketing, all, all of those things I mean they all employ a, a type of brainwashing they, they right. do, and in unseen influence, which is... Uh, yeah, the greatest example, I think the greatest example is the... Uh, you remember the Swiffer, when Swiffer first came out? Yeah. In the early 1990s. Um, and I'll never forget this, because it was just, it was on every single channel, every single commercial. It was the first commercial, last commercial. And it was like, just bombarded you until finally you'd catch it. I would catch myself. I'm like, oh, I think I need a Swiffer. And I'm like... <laughs> Yes, with her. But because they did that massive, massive inundation, that is very directly brainwashing through yes. just constant bombardment. Yeah, well, that TV commercials essentially are that because they're not there to generally make you aware of a product. They're there to have you uh, make, have their product at top of mind. So that if you think about uh, um, soda, a soft drink, you're going to think Coca-Cola. If you think about well, this product placement, something in there. But if you think about chewing gum, you're going to think about Wrigley's. If you think about um, cleaning products, you're going to think about Mr. Clean or something like that. You know, it's like, that's what they want. They want to be top of mind and it works and it works. Yeah. And, uh, and and they, they get into it and, it and it really does, it is some degree an invasion of your conscious mind because they're in there. I can still remember advertising jingles from when I was a small child. That stuff stays in your head. It's very it clever. Yes. Very clever. Yeah. <laughs> it's, but it's interesting. There's so much of it out there. And I remember um, finding a book called Mind Controlled Marketing one time. It's a guy called Mark Joyner, if you've ever come across him. 
and um, an interesting guy. And the, the book, it was a, a bit of an eye-opener for me, but it led me to other resources as well that I found, eventually Robert Cialdini's book on influence, which is critical reading for anybody, in my opinion. And there's this whole hidden world of influence that most people have no idea is there, how it's affecting them, how things are interacting, that most of us are running on automatic and not even realizing it and stopping to question it. And if there's one thing that I care about probably more than just about anything else is getting people to stop and ask some questions and mm. check things for themselves, find out what's really true for them. And some, sometimes I get a bit, uh, a bit strong on that. <laughs> that maybe uh, put, might push people away a bit, but I really love uh, questioning mentality and I get a bit concerned when people don't have that and when they're not actually questioning things. But it is generally what we get conditioned to. Now, I, I don't want to don't want to take up your whole day here, so so we want to <laughs> sort of wrap, wrap things up a little bit. And I know the, the cats will probably want your attention <laughs> as well, right? So, so let's so let's start to to wrap things up. We've talked about some of the resources that are available for people. I also think it's important to address how we treat people who may be parts of these groups as well, because you know, so they're kidnapping them and deprogramming them isn't necessarily the best way forward, and scorning them and slamming doors on the faces also may not be the best way. What do you think is the best way to interact or treat people who are maybe involved in these sorts of cults or um, have some sort of association to them? So if you if you want to influence somebody to get out of what you think is a cult, I would really invite you to think in terms of what is your long-term game? And it is not an instant. You can't go to somebody and say, oh, you're part of a cult, you should get out. Because the first thing that's going to happen is people are going to do pushback. They're not going to want to think that they're part of a cult, sure. even if they are. And so I would suggest this piece of always dropping tiny little questions so it's not the big questions. It's just tiny little questions. So when they tell you about something that's going on, if you can, you can re reflect it back to them and say, oh, you know, use their, their language, the last three words of what they say and say, oh, you know, you're doing that. You know, just this, this question and let them, you know, expand on it. And dropping in like, wow, I, I don't understand how that works because that, that's, you know, this is, you know, this doesn't line up with this and leaving them tiny little thoughts. So, you know, if we use the example of Jehovah Witnesses, it's like, oh, you know, Armageddon's coming and then we're all going to be janitors for the next thousand years. Is that what you're saying? Like, but you have to just leave them one jarring piece for them to chew on. Mm -hmm. And it's going to take possibly three years of doing these tiny little disruptions into their universe to get them to think about it. Mm -hmm. um, people are not going to be open to you just saying, you're part of a call, you should get out, you're being stupid. Because that's going to flare up all the cognitive distance and they're going to have to push back on you. Yeah, I, I often think the similar kind of thing with with religion. I know when I when I left religion in general, that um, that I tended to think that religious people were somehow stupid, and then I have to sometimes remind myself, "Hey, I believed in all this stuff once. Is that, do, I, do I think I was stupid? I don't." And I also know plenty of very intelligent people who have all sorts of beliefs. Is that okay? Well. Maybe I need to learn to be a bit more respectful to to people's beliefs, but also that you can ask questions if 
if they're open to it then one thing i i've generally discovered is you can't help you can't get an inroad someone if they don't even want to have that discussion however if someone is trying to get you on board with their religion you have every right to be asking them questions in return as well because they're yeah yeah they're going to be but but pick your pick your battles and and keep it keep it small because i remember my sister questioning me one time so i was involved in a a personal development program thing that, you know, became rather cult-like. Mm. Um, and the further up you go in it, it gets a little crazy. And at one point my sister said, you know, it's kind of starting to sound like a cult. And that's all she said. And honestly, that niggled in the back of my brain. And then I started, you know, researching. And, and at that time it was like, you know, I found all kinds of articles saying it's a cult, it's a cult, it's a cult. And I'm like, oh, they're just, they're just mad because of, you know, blah, blah, blah. But it stuck with me. And so when I started seeing things that showed signs of it being like that, that, that little implant, and this is what I'm saying is like, if you have somebody don't discount the, the impact that that one question can make in somebody's life. Plant the seeds. Absolutely. I have, I've heard stories from people before saying that there was someone who had said something to them, maybe even 10 years before that had planted the seed that eventually led to them um, coming out of, that particular belief system moving into something else, but the seeds have been planted. Like you might not see the results of the seed for the tree that you plant, but um, it will it will grow hopefully in in the minds of the place where you planted it. And I, and I do think it's important to treat people with kindness and recognize that unless someone is um, trying to force their beliefs on you um, for whatever way, unless we're sort of getting into sort of Handmaid's Tale territory and oh. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> let's hang on. But uh, then, then you know, it's it's not a war. It's it's um it's a, it is an, an idea, a war of ideas to some degree. But the the bigger war is going to be going on inside people's heads of the cognitive dissonance, and that's what they're going to have to work out. Try and be kind to people. Recognize it's not because they're stupid. It may just be because they've been misled. And it may just be because they haven't really questioned things in that way before, or they've been, as they've been in the community where that's all you hear. Just to be a bit kinder, and I think that's a great idea, just see if you can plant a little seed, see if you can get some sort of opening that leaves something with them for them to go away and think about. But your job isn't to take strip them of their belief right then and there and pull it away from them. But if they want to engage a bit further in that, you might be able to go a bit further with them and ask them some more questions and let them ask you questions as well. But in a respect where it can be um, brought in is going to be a very useful tool to actually engage a bit more critical thinking. And that's what we're going for, ultimately, to help people help people engage their minds a bit more and see things for more of what they really are rather than what they've been told they are. Yeah. Let's let's wrap things up there, Danny. But it's been a really interesting conversation. I'm so happy that you came and shared your experience of this with us as well. I'm going to put uh, links to some of the resources that we talked about in the show notes for this, so people can go and check those out for themselves. Are there any other uh, books or resources that you wanted to mention as we wrap things up? Uh, my brain's not clicking, but I can probably uh, send you an email and and see about uh, getting some pieces in there. No worries, we'll we'll make sure that that all goes in as well. Thank you so much for your time once again. I really enjoyed the discussion and we'll continue to stay in contact with you. I think you're an incredible person and it's been one hell of a journey, right? 
Uh, thanks, John. I, I really do enjoy these conversations with you as well. It's, you are a delight. Thank you so much. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, please make sure to like and subscribe and come back for more great episodes and chats with amazing people. If you think you'd be a good guest for the podcast or you know someone who would, or you think I'd be a good guest for your podcast, please feel free to get in touch. You can email me, john at presentinfluence.com. If you think I'd be a good speaker for your event, or you'd like to learn more about public speaking, presentation skills, whether that's online or in person, creating online products and services, video content, having clarity, confidence, and charisma in all of doing that, then please shoot me an email or visit my website, presentinfluence.com, and I'll see you there.